The single most important fact to understand about the Israel-Palestine conflict is that Jerusalem, capital of Israel currently, is the holiest site in Judaism and the third holiest site in Islam. Each side sees this land as their home granted to them by God. And asking any people to give up their home, especially when it has such sacred meaning to them, is utter lunacy. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Indubitably. I am Josh. And I'm Kelly. And this is the self-described debate podcast. And today we're going to be tackling one of the big ones. If you aren't living under a rock, you are aware of the conflict that is currently wreaking havoc in Israel and Palestine, as well as how incredibly divisive it has been in the U.S. and the world over. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'll say up front in this episode. This is a conflict that's been going on for decades. It is impossible to cover the full conflict or even this most recent iteration of it in a one-hour podcast. We like to say this for almost all of our episodes, but in particular this one, that our show is meant to be a starting point to provide you some of the information that you need to start to become better informed on the topics that define our world and give you some of the arguments and ideas to hopefully spark more productive and informed conversations for you, whether that's internal to yourself or with the people around you. And with that in mind, today we are going to attempt to first give a brief summary of the current situation, noting that it is constantly evolving. So the facts when you hear this might be different than at the time of the recording. Next, before we get into specific arguments, we'll talk about some of the common mistakes that people make when discussing hyperpolarized and controversial topics, like this, to keep in mind throughout the rest of the episode. We'll go over a more extensive, and hopefully not too boring, history of the region that we think is necessary to provide the context to these more recent events. We'll explore some of the rhetoric and arguments we are hearing from the various sides on the issue and talk about where they seem to be effective and where they fall short. And finally, we'll talk about proposed solutions. And spoiler alert, there don't seem to be any good ones. All right. So first, what is happening right now, or at least at the time of this recording? On October 7th, Hamas launched a raid from the Gaza Strip into southern Israel, killing over 1,400 people and taking some 240 hostage, including children, the vast majority of whom are still missing. This was the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. In response, Israel engaged and continues to engage in a massive retaliation, dropping 6,000 bombs in six days following the attack. The Gaza Strip is an area the size of two Washington, D.C.s. Imagine dropping 3,000 bombs on Washington, D.C. It doesn't leave a lot of room to avoid these explosions. This is nearly the record number that the U.S. dropped on the country of Afghanistan in a single year, and it was done in six days. As of the time of this recording, over 12,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 
5,000 children. Israel has also cut off all food, water, and fuel to the region, with talks to provide aid just now seeming to gain any traction. Right. Uh, So, I mean, for both sides, this is, in a conflict, like we said, that's already been going on for decades, one of the worst iterations of it is happening right now. And anytime there's a conflict like this, there's some common mistakes that people make as they attempt to construct and forward their position on various issues. So before we get into the specifics of this topic, I think it's worth us pointing out some of these issues that that come up with argumentation in general, and hopefully that will help inform us throughout the rest of this episode. In an issue like this, which is incredibly complicated, there are several things which can be lost in the process, such as nuance, specificity, mindfulness, empathy. Mm -hmm. People try to simplify arguments rather than engage in good faith. And let's keep in mind the way that discourse has evolved, considering not only the 24-hour media landscape where everything has to be new, up to the minute, sensationalized, but social media has also had a massive influence in how the discourse has evolved, and it is starting to get really messy out there. Mm. So some common mistakes that we see on controversial topics over and over again, and we are certainly seeing right now when it comes to Israel and Palestine. One, groups are not homogenous. I thought everybody who shared a characteristic in one regard shared every characteristic in every regard. Hmm. Yeah, we could go into a larger identity politics debate later. But then this particular instance, I think it's important to note that there are Muslims, Palestinians that don't support Hamas. There's also Jews that don't support Zionism or their current government led by Netanyahu. Yeah, we've seen, especially in the US, and I'm sure in other places, protests that have emphasized the quote, not in our name uh, aspect of Jewish folks who do not live in Israel saying, this is not the conflict we want it to be. We don't want anything like this engaged on our behalf. Um, We have no part in this. Right. But then like we've seen in history, it's very inconvenient to treat people as individuals when you're trying to hate them. It's much easier to hate an anonymous group of people that you can label as the bad guy rather than treat people as the individual people that they are. And we've seen since this attack an uptick in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents, including violent assaults. This has been spiking across the United States. Yeah, I believe there was recently an issue where a landlord killed his tenants, including a child who were Muslim, in kind of a response to this increasing tension. It's gotten chaotic and violent out there. Mm-hmm. And Besides the actions that we've seen an uptick in, this sort of homogenization of groups also takes place in the rhetoric. All Palestinians are responsible for the attack on October 7th for various reasons that are nonsense. Because, you know, 20 years ago, which we'll get into, they voted Hamas into government. Or all Jewish people are oppressing and responsible for the subsequent attacks on Palestinian people. I mean, obviously, at face value, this sort of rhetoric is misguided. And I think on a deeper level, it is literally the reason we are in this situation right now. We're we're trying to solve 
a problem with violence. And oftentimes that violence is targeted towards a group of people, like you said, Kelly, that happen to share similar characteristics and assuming that because of that, they also share opinions and mindsets and stances, et cetera. One misconception that might need to be clarified is the idea that people enjoy engaging in this level of violence or other forms of hatred when, in fact, a lot of it it seems like a necessary evil to the people who are engaging in it because it's an idea of self-preservation, uh, taking care of their families, you know, securing their own homes, not necessarily a decision that they believe is made out of hatred or bloodlust. Mm-hmm. For example, there are a good number of Jewish individuals living in the United States that have flown back to Israel to volunteer for the Israeli Defense Forces. And they're not doing it because they hate Palestinians, because they hate Muslims or or out of this sense of bloodlust. They're doing it because they are desperate and feel as though uh, their services are required to defend the homeland. And, you know, on reverse on the Palestinian side, I think the same is true. It's not all one thing or the other either. We may be looking at the situation thinking, it's all about bloodlust. And then a lot of people will be saying, no, it's about preservation of our homes and making sure we're well defended. But there's also the possibility that there is a little bit about this being about hatred. So it's a mix of different ideologies fueling it. And it's not all one thing or the other. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that each individual goes into this carrying their own independent opinions and motivations. Mm-hmm. One argument that seems to be coming up over and over again, and of course, uh, certain people in the U.S. government are are forwarding this idea, is that there are no such thing as innocent Palestinians. There's no such thing as Palestinian civilians. And their justification for this is because Palestinians voted for Hamas, which ignores, again, some specificity and some context to the situation. Like, for example, 2006 was the last election that took place in the Gaza Strip. Like, for example, 50% of the population of the Gaza Strip is under 18, which means they weren't even born when the election happened. Like, for example, in 2014, Hamas engaged in abductions, torture, and murder of their own Palestinian citizens who were accused of supporting Fatah, Hamas's rival political faction in the Gaza Strip, or collaborating with Israel. So, again, these attempts to sort of homogenize all Palestinians as being one thing and forward the idea that they are all complicit in the attack on Israel and this is the mindset that they all share is a little bit ridiculous. It would be like saying that we as American citizens are still individually responsible for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And on the Israeli side, similarly, 76% of Israelis want Netanyahu out after this conflict is over. They see him as being responsible for security failings leading to the recent attacks. And yet it's much easier to talk about these and make arguments about these issues as Israelis are X. Palestinians are X. There is no such thing as a Palestinian civilian. And the more we allow for the rhetoric of homogeneity to proceed, 
the easier it is to view these as faceless masses instead of individual people. And it's easier for the perpetuation of violence when they lack humanity. Mm -hmm. And then the last really just common mistake that people make when talking about controversial issues like this one is not recognizing the fact that both sides can be right. And conversely, of course, both sides can also be wrong. The environment surrounding this topic is so heated right now that it feels kind of risky to say either of those things because people want to look at the situation in absolutes because absolutes are easier for our brains to categorize and and find association with than looking at that level of nuance. And we're asking for people to engage with a level of nuance that may be uncomfortable. You know, there's a reason that us as putting out a one hour long podcast on this issue are going to have infinitely less listens, views, what have you, than some influencer on TikTok that makes a 15 second statement. And in 15 seconds, what can you really say past Israel is doing this, it's wrong, period, done? Yeah, TikTok is probably not the place I would suggest most people go for their foreign policy information. So for this issue, as we continue the episode about Israel, Palestine, Hamas, the attacks, etc., just keep these things in mind. We'll try and keep these things in mind as we talk about them. But also, it's useful to keep these things in mind in any controversial topic. People are not homogenous. Sometimes people have to make really tough decisions, and the decision they come to doesn't necessarily mean they enjoy it. It means they see it as something that's necessary. And a lot of times on these topics, both sides can be right and both sides can be wrong. With that said, let's actually talk about what has led to the situation that we are in right now and have a little history lesson. Boring. <laughs> history is one of those things that is often couched as fact, but rarely actually is. Um, it is easily manipulated to shift a debate towards one side or the other. You often hear the phrase that history belongs to the victors, etc. So what we'll do is try to give us objective a retelling of the history of this region as possible, given our time constraints here. And in addition to that, we'll also try pointing out some pertinent arguments hidden behind the quote unquote objective elements of the story. So let's start with the religious history of Jerusalem in particular. The single most important fact to understand about the Israel-Palestine conflict is that Jerusalem, capital of Israel currently, is the holiest site in Judaism and the third holiest site in Islam. Each side sees this land as their home granted to them by God. And asking any people to give up their home, especially when it has such sacred meaning to them, is utter lunacy. Does that mean it's also impossible to share the home? It would certainly seem so, given the way things are, are playing out right now. It's kind of understandable why neither side wants to share, much less give it up. Jerusalem has been the holiest city in Judaism and the ancestral and spiritual homeland of the Jewish people since the 10th century BCE. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's a long time ago. That's like definitely over 2,000 years ago because we are currently in the, the CE and BCE is before the CE. Mm. <laughs> ah, that's why they call it that. Mm -hmm. 
During classical antiquity, Jerusalem was literally considered the center of the world where God resided. The city of Jerusalem is given special status in Jewish religious law. In particular, Jews outside of Jerusalem pray facing in its direction, and several holy ceremonies must take place inside of the city of Jerusalem. I don't know where the rest of this discussion is going, but that doesn't sound that dissimilar to some of the things I know about Islam. Mm, (laughs) Let's get to Islam. In Islam, the Quran describes how the prophet was taken by the miraculous steed Barak from the great mosque of Mecca to Al-Aqsa, where he prayed and then visited heaven in a single night. There is a hadith, which is believed to be a record of the words of the prophet Muhammad, that, quote, the most holy spot on earth is Syria. The most holy spot in Syria is Palestine. The most holy spot in Palestine is Jerusalem. The most holy spot in Jerusalem is the mountain. The most holy spot in Jerusalem is the place of worship. And the most holy spot in the place of worship is the dome. This is referring to the Dome of the Rock, which is an Islamic shrine at the center of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, remember where the Prophet Muhammad was flown to, and that is in the compound on the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem. So similar to Jews, Muslims believe that Muhammad led prayers towards Jerusalem until Allah directed him to turn towards Mecca. It might seem a little unfamiliar to people who don't have a ton of geographical attachment to a specific place. But if this is a fundamental tenant of your faith, and so much is tied to that religious locale, I can see why this is so important to them. Right. It's really hard to conduct religious ceremonies in a particular spot if somebody else controls that spot and won't let you in. And I think you don't have to be religious to understand this. There's a place in the United States called Tornado Alley in the Midwest South area of the country. And there are rednecks that live there and they won't even leave their homes, even when their homes are like torn up, thrown in the sky and they have to rebuild a new one. And they, for some reason they keep going back because that's home. Like uh, flooding in Florida. Leave already. Nope. Yeah. And it wouldn't even be that hard because most of them, their homes have wheels. You're going to get some comments for that one. (laughs) Anyway, you can blame. I think Chris Rock made that joke first. (laughs) So that's the religious history, which I think is important just to provide some context as to how deeply tied both of the parties involved are to this particular piece of land. We also have the political history that will lead us from the foundation of Israel as a country to the events of the past couple of months. To attempt to make this as succinct as possible, we'll say that pre-1917, all of Israel was formerly the region of Palestine, rather than Israel with tiny little sections of Palestine, so imagine it in reverse, if you will, and that was ruled by the Ottoman Empire and was predominantly Arab. However, based uh, partly on the religious importance we discussed earlier and partly due to rising anti-Semitism in Europe, In the late 1800s, we saw the emergence of the Zionist movement, which had the goal of returning the Jewish people to a sovereign state in the land of Israel. And this fostered increased Jewish immigration to this larger state of Palestine and sought international recognition of the Jewish right to independence. Literally, the situation that we have right now 
in reverse. Arabs controlled the area, and the Jews were an extreme minority. So how did such an extreme change in the tides happen? How are we now in a situation where the roles are reversed? All right. Here's the history lesson. <laughs> oh, no. We'll go through this. We'll try to make it interesting. But, uh, but it does provide, I think, important context as to the mindset from which each of these sides is working with as they make decisions uh, you know, today on, on the various happenings, in particular, this conflict that has been going on the most recent month. So we have the Zionist movement. And during World War I, Britain, because you knew Britain was going to get involved here, they submitted a letter of intent supporting the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. This was the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And their hope was that by proclaiming this support of a Jewish return to Palestine at the time, they would then garner support from the Jewish population for their efforts in the World War. Everything is about some sort of manipulation or influence or something I don't like when it comes to the actions that Britain has had internationally. Oh, just wait. It gets better. By better, I mean worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. So after World War I, which we obviously won, in 1922, the League of Nations placed Palestine under British mandate. And one of the things that the Brits did with said mandate was propose a two-state solution. So we have this influx of Jews back to the homeland. Their population is growing. We have the Arabs who are currently the majority and have been historically the majority in Palestine. And Britain said, hey, why don't we just split this in half, create two different states? Well, that seems like sort of a reasonable approach to things. Uh, so how did how did the Arabs in particular react to that proposal? Poorly. Okay, moving on. <laughs> well, one of the big historical X factors has been who gets Jerusalem, uh, and that's assuming that they even want to split up the country of Palestine at all. Nobody wants to give up Jerusalem in particular, much less you know the land surrounding it. So the Arabs being incredibly unhappy with this proposition, World War II happened. And this time, London thought that it would be more beneficial to their efforts to curb Israeli immigration to Palestine to maintain Arab support during World War II. So World War I, we need Jewish support. Let's say, yeah, we totally support the establishment of a Jewish homeland. World War II, we need Arab support. Let's slow down this Jewish immigration and, you know, and throw a bone to the Arabs for once. For the listeners, I'm shaking my fist about Britain and it basically operating exclusively out of what is best for Britain. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure during this whole process, they stole some artifacts to send back to their museums as well. Yep. The only reason they couldn't take the pyramids is because they're too heavy. <laughs> After World War II, which again, we won, in 1947, the newly formed United Nations voted to, in fact, divide British-ruled Palestine into two states. And since we now had an Israeli state run by Jews, we had a Palestinian state run by Arabs, the British didn't need to be there anymore. So they pulled out, and as soon as they did, the Arabs attacked the Jews. It may seem extreme, but if 
basically for decisions that you had no control over, half your country was more or less stolen from you. Wouldn't you do something similar? Right. And this is where I think, you know, as as dry as going through the history of the region might be, it does provide important context. Because we have to note that Israel as a country is a relatively new thing. Before that, Palestine was not these tiny West Bank and Gaza Strip regions. It was the entirety of that area, and the Arabs were in control of it. So this was not, hey, half of it's Jewish, half of it's Arab. Cool, let's just break it down the middle. This was literally theft of half of a country away from a group of people and handing it off to a different group of people. A different group of people that felt they had legitimacy to be there because it's a centuries-old homeland. It is, and I don't need to go into too much detail about some of the specifics about World War II, but the Jewish people wanting to have a homeland of their own after facing persecution everywhere else in the world also doesn't seem like an unreasonable desire. I mean, that's fair. There are a lot of people in this world that have been very cruel to Jewish folks, and there are a lot of people who have been very cruel to Arab folks. So it's a legitimate idea that they would want their own sovereignty and, and security. And having both of them thrown into the same region, left by the British, and basically, hey, just fight it out. Good job, UK. Good job, the West. Y'all do real well in the Middle East. Yeah, we, they do well everywhere. The history of colonialism is robust and rich. So you have the British pulling out, you have Arabs attacking the Jews, trying to reconsolidate Palestine as theirs. This two-state solution is nonsense. But Israeli forces actually gained the upper hand. They won this conflict, and they declared independence in 1948. And the newly formed state of Israel was recognized by the United States, who this is the first of Many times you'll hear about the United States and its support of Israel moving forward. It was also recognized by the USSR, the Soviet Union, and many other governments around the world. Is this the last time the US and the USSR agreed on anything? It might be. Uh, unfortunately, there were five states at least that did not recognize the newly formed Israel, those five states being Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Transjordan who immediately invaded the new country. So five states that didn't have nearly as much political dominance globally. Right, but five states that geographically have a hell of a lot more stay in this particular region. As a side note, I think if we're talking about useful things to do when examining controversial topics, anytime you're learning about a geopolitical issue like this, it helps to pull up a map and in this particular instance, you will see that the country of Israel is surrounded by these nations. It has Egypt to the south. It has Lebanon and Syria to the north. It has Jordan to the east. And so to be attacked by all of these countries is to literally be surrounded and invaded by all sides all at once. Somehow, though, Israel managed to hold off all of these countries, the somehow being None of these countries were able to agree with each other on their goals or methods, complete lack of coordination, and it allowed Israel to, to make it through this initial attack on their sovereignty. But was Israel content with just having made it through this conflict, or did Israel maybe do additional stuff 
in the in the region that might have led to some additional antipathy. Right. And well, this is where we said earlier, people are typically not all good or all bad. People are not typically all right or all wrong. Um, if you are a Jewish person or a Jewish population that has been persecuted throughout World War II, certainly you can't be blamed for wanting to establish your own homeland. If you are Arab countries who have just had land stolen away from you, you certainly can't be blamed for trying to get that land back. Um, but this next one is where we start to see criticism of Israel and its tactics, which, again, I guess that's why we're here today, may be necessary in their mind, may be overkill in the mind of the rest of the world. But to answer your question, the next thing that Israel did was carry out the Nakba, which means catastrophe in Arabic. And the Nakba was a mass displacement and dispossession of Palestinians, forcing them out from the newly controlled land, forcing them to flee to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which at the time were not included in this newly established uh, country of Israel. I feel like this is a refrain I've repeated a few times, but I can't imagine that that went over well with a lot of the Palestinians. No. so. The Gaza Strip and the West Bank then became launching points for militia attacks where the defeated Arab countries were sending guerrillas in through the Gaza Strip, which is close to what we're seeing right now. Uh, they would send guerrillas in and attempt to continue their attacks and destabilization of the Jewish people in the newly formed country of Israel. We're not even halfway through the 20th century, and I have a feeling it, it kept going. Yeah, well, we're halfway through the history lesson, I promise. Okay. Um, but at this point, we have an incredibly tumultuous shift to answer your original question, which was, how did we get from a Arab-controlled Palestine being the predominant country in the region to the Jewish-controlled Israel? I think that's where we're at now. We now have Israel. They survived the initial attack. They then kicked out Palestinians from their borders. The next thing that we have to talk about is the 1956 Suez War. And this one is interesting because it's the first preemptive attack that Israel has made. It was attack against Egypt, and it was done along with Anglo and French forces who were interested in controlling the Suez Canal. Oh, so the damn British showed up again. Mm-hmm. And this time the French. Uh, the, the damn French while we're at it. And there's two things that are important here. One is the fact that it was preemptive. So Israel was afraid of Egypt's increasingly proficient military and thought that potentially Egypt would be looking to invade again. So they preemptively attacked Egypt. That's an important distinction between defensive wars of the past. And two, we have another example of European nonsense. Not really caring about what happens to the people of the region, but just knowing that they want this shipping lane that's great for their economy. So, sure, let's invade. Let's start a war. European nonsense is like white nonsense, but it wears a beret. With an accent. <laughs> the next thing that we have, we're getting there, we're almost there. The 1967 Six-Day War, where once again, the countries surrounding Israel, this time Egypt, Jordan, and Syria launched attacks on Israel, and once again, uh, Israel managed to repel said attacks. They launched a surprise offensive on air forces of the various countries that led to victory. And after this conflict, the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, 
the Gaza Strip, those two being probably the most important ones, and the Golan Heights, as well as East Jerusalem, were brought under Israeli control. So now, as opposed to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as being regions outside of Israel that they were pushing Palestinians and Arabs into, now Israel actually has rule over one million Palestinians. Oh, shit. Yeah, this is just like insult to injury. Like they steal a country from you, they kick you out, and then they bring you back in in a weird way, but now you have to live under their control. Yes, I imagine this contributes to a lot of the tensions that we're seeing now. And this is like this is a layer cake of tension that is building up into like a catastrophic dessert. My metaphors are weak today, I'm sorry. Well, speaking of food metaphors, uh, the French, for some reason, were super salty about Israel's tactics in this conflict. And so they imposed an arms embargo where the U.S. stepped in and replaced the arms that the French pulled out. This is huge because from here on, we see gradually increasing intensity of U.S. support for Israel. And that is sort of solidified in the Yom Kippur War which is the last war we're going to talk about, I promise, in 1973, where Egyptian and Syrian forces attacked Israeli forces in the Suez Canal and the Golan Heights. And here's the nail in the coffin. The Soviet Union provided support to the Arab forces, which prompted the U.S. to arm Israel. Oh, so this is almost like a U.S. proxy war with the Soviet Union, in a sense. And and that's really what Israel seems to be from then until now is the U.S.'s surrogate in the region, serving as sort of a first line of defense, the the first domino, if you will. Because they inherently, as the U.S., view all of the Arab states as being enemies or potential enemies. Right. And now we're at current day, history lesson over, you all survived. The U.S. now provides $3.8 billion annually to Israel for military and missile defense systems. To be fair, the U.S. also provides support to Palestine, less than $200 million a year, which, to do the math for you, is one-twenty-sixth of the support it gives Israel just for weapons. Not to be all tea party about this, but it's my money. That's my tax dollars. <laughs> what the fuck? Right. And this is the first argument that seems to be missing from public discourse. How how have the British and the U.S. been so implicit in the creation of this clusterfuck of a region in the world, and yet somehow in the midst of this seemingly escaped all criticism or responsibility for assisting in finding a solution? I think that the U.S. has been getting more direct criticism, at least lately. But the UK has really flown under the radar with like, culpability. Like everybody says, oh, the British like helped create the state in the 40s. And then they're like, but now it's not like that sort of an issue. It's the US that's the problem. But I think they bear some responsibility that might last at least a century. Yeah, the West has used Israel, the Palestinians and the people of the Middle East as a whole as chess pieces in their games of international relations and conflict, punting them back and forth like the proverbial political footballs without much consideration for the impact those actions would have on the region or its people. 
food metaphors, chess metaphors, and sports metaphors. We are on a roll today. And so all of that leads us to now and the narratives that exist on both sides. On one side, the Jews see Israel as theirs, given to them by God, and they are holding on to their home while they are besieged by enemies on all sides. Countries that surround them call explicitly for their annihilation and have attempted to carry out that annihilation multiple times in the past, and terrorist factions within their borders that are also attempting to do as much damage to their country and people as they possibly can. And on the other side, the Arabs, and specifically the Palestinians, see their home as having been stolen from them, first by the British, and then handed to the Jews, and then bit by bit, their lands, freedoms, and opportunities shrink year by year as they are functionally relegated to open-air prisons. And quite frankly, neither narrative is wrong. It's pretty evident that throughout the history of this dispute, nobody is purely innocent. And definitely nobody is purely evil. There are some behaviors that have existed on either side that we might cast aspersions on now, but both of these groups of people have experienced some level of victimhood too from the impacts of their direct opponent or international actors. It's it's just a mess. Right. So this brings us back to today. Underneath those two umbrella narratives, what are we seeing in the media on this issue and the the current events? Let's talk about what we're hearing in the news, which is obviously totally objective mm-hmm. before we get to the statements or positions that people have been taking. And, and here's another, I suppose, common mistake or just thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with these kind of issues is that no matter how much news you watch, we don't really know what is happening on the other side of the world. There is propaganda on both sides, even from news sources that we would like to trust, that we're getting some version of the truth from everybody. So while, you know, you obviously want to try and stay informed and do the best that you can to put together a a version as close to the version of the truth as, as possible, I would caution people against knowing the capital T truth about an issue if they are not literally living that issue themselves. And honestly, the people who are living the issue are probably getting a pretty narrow glimpse of it as well. They're only living a part of the experience. And due to the same factors like media bias or, you know, limited means of reporting on the entirety of the issue, they probably don't see everything either. There's no one person who knows everything on this issue. Another good example of this, another conflict that's going on right now would be Russia-Ukraine. And once again, not trying to homogenize the Russian people or also demonize the Russian people, but the media that they're exposed to is certainly rife with propaganda. So, you know, the things that they know to be true and therefore the decisions that they make based on that truth are going to be flawed, not necessarily through any fault of their own. Is it still okay for us to demonize um, Americans, the British, and the French, though? Oh, that's a capital T truth. <laughs> okay, so what's actually what's actually getting reported here? 
Particularly, I want to talk about the news in regards to the innocents, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S, particularly children and hospitals. So one of the things that's reported in the news that I think is relatively well accepted is that in these bombings that Israel is undertaking, remember 6,000 bombs in the first six days, 5,000 Palestinian children were killed. No matter your stance on this issue, that's an appalling number of, of children to be killed. And I think we can all hopefully agree that children do not bear responsibility for the issues at hand. No, absolutely. And I, I'm a little bit hesitant to point out this next fact, but I do think that it provides necessary context. Uh, so without condoning said bombings necessarily, as we stated earlier, half of the Palestinian population is under 18, though. And so when we say that 5,000 Palestinian children have been killed, uh, if half of the people living in a country are children by definition, it doesn't make it okay. But I think it's at least important to acknowledge that fact. Like, it doesn't seem as though children were specifically targeted. It's uh, incidental to the conflict that it just so happens there are so many children in Palestine. Right. And certainly, I also don't think we could say that Israeli forces are going out of their way to avoid it either. So not targeted, but also not trying to avoid it, certainly. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, we also saw the 240 Jewish hostages that were taken. And they are very quick to point out that 30 of those hostages were also children as a, I suppose, justification for the deaths that they are responsible for. I don't I don't know if that's well, it's definitely not an equivalent number, but I don't know that it's actually quite the parallel that some people may think it is. But either way, we would prefer if children were not impacted by this issue. And I think that's an uncontroversial thing to say. Right. And and my point here is not to necessarily upplay or downplay or justify or demonize uh, these facts, but more to note that, again, when you listen to the news and you do hear facts like this, understand that there is some sort of spin doctoring at play. Now, you also mentioned that hospitals are at issue as well. So what are the commonly accepted details about the issue of hospitals in this conflict? Right. And so I think both sides understanding that it doesn't look too good on them to be victimizing the most vulnerable members of any particular society. Currently, time of the recording, Israeli forces are in Al-Shifa hospital and they are looking for evidence of it being a key Hamas command center. So this is super important because so much is riding on this as Israel's rhetoric throughout the entire conflict, and its only real justification of the civilian casualties, was that Hamas was using its own people as human shields. So really, the Palestinians are the victims of Hamas, not victims of Israel. That includes the 5,000 Palestinian children that were killed. That includes any types of babies or doctors or invalids that met their deaths inside of these hospitals and similar facilities as Israel dropped bombs on the region. So if they cannot find evidence of this hospital being a command center, they lose a lot of justification, a lot of credibility. But like most military offenses, 
there will be some justification in the idea that if they hadn't done due diligence and it turned out to be what they assumed it was, then it would have been a failure on their part. So I'm assuming that the rhetoric is it is better to be safe than sorry. Well, this is what makes this conflict so hard to adjudicate and honestly so disturbing is, you know, the term since 9-11, I suppose, the term asymmetrical warfare has become a thing where there are different rules when it is a country engaging another country in war versus a country engaging a terrorist organization in war. If the United States were to invade Canada, for whatever reason, hospitals would be off limit, period. But partly the reason for that is because Canada would not be using hospitals as military staging grounds or as military bases or places to hide weapons or launch rockets from, etc. In this particular conflict, Hamas has this really strange status as being one kind of a terrorist organization, kind of guerrilla warfare, but two, at the same time, kind of a government agency that has control over the infrastructure and including hospitals of its region. The prevailing presence of non-state actors or predominantly non-state actors in global conflicts has been muddying these waters for a very long time. And it's been justifying a lot of actions from state actors that we would not accept in other situations. And maybe maybe we don't need to accept them in these situations either, but it, it's a non-traditional war for a non-state, semi-state actor to engage in. And maybe that means non-traditional tactics and targets are actually appropriate and good. But I mean, that feels gross. Right. or. You know, I think the argument is that these targets are completely unacceptable, but who's making them a target? Is Hamas making it a target by using it as a human shield? Or is Israel making it a target by just trying to blanket bomb an entire region and completely ignoring any semblance of, you know, warfare, morality, and ethics? Well, that's a question that has been present in many conflicts. Who is responsible when a human shield is killed? Saddam Hussein used human shields, and he was a state actor. Who Who's ultimately responsible for the death of a human shield? The person who uses the human shield or the person who attacks despite a human shield? Mm. And this is why we have one side showing us videos of bombings and babies, while the other side is showing us Kalashnikov rifles, tunnel entrances, and booby-trapped vehicles that were found inside the hospital. And on this particular issue of the news, I, I think it more important, we've already said it, but it's more important here to note that at the time of this recording, no definitive evidence has been found one way or another in regards to Al-Shifa Hospital, uh, but presumably, takes me two to three days to edit, they're in the hospital right now searching, presumably, we will have an answer one way or the other by the time that you're listening to this. Spoiler alert, history marches on. So this particular detail is going to be incredibly important for how we adjudicate this conflict. But again, just this mindset of looking at the news, understanding that this is the way the news is used as a tool or even weapon of war is really important for any conflict. We also mentioned Russia-Ukraine. I think it's relevant to any discussion that you have on that as well. So that's the news. Now, what about statements and positions that are being taken by 
politicians, corporations, Elon Musk, etc. God, I'm so sick of opinions. <laughs> and we are getting so many of them right now. And uh, social media in particular is just rife with people who've ignored all of the types of things we've been talking about and are making all these generalizations and failing to look at nuance. And it's just a, the, the fray of voices is unmanageable. One of the causes for that, though, is for some reason, people seem to want to force others to make statements. They want to force their representatives. They want to force the company that they work for, the university that they go to, the media mogul that they idolize. Anybody with any sort of platform seems obligated to have a stance on this issue. Yeah, Josh, your silence is deafening. I'm rarely silent. But on this issue, this is the one you don't comment on. Wow. <laughs> that just makes your silence that much louder. Exactly. This is problematic in and of itself. Uh, honestly, sometimes there's nothing productive to say on an issue. I just really don't think that like Clackamas Community College in the state of Oregon needs to like make a statement on this because what does it actually do for the issue? But then again, a lot of these institutions feel compelled to say something because they have students, faculty, employees who are attached to these communities in one way or the other. And they want to acknowledge the difficulty of the situation and, and the pain that everybody's experiencing as a result. And as a, as a result, some of the ways that they're talking about these issues are just, they're biffing it left and right. I also believe that maybe some of the motivation, you know, asking whatever institution you feel connected to or, or whatever politician you feel represented by to come out with a statement stems from, with social media and the world we live in, there's a frustration that we can't actually do anything to affect this conflict that's going on realistically, nothing that any of us say is going to make a difference. And so you kind of just feel good that you've contributed in some way. If you can push for somebody that's more powerful than you to take a stance, like you've done your part. Maybe there are just some entities that don't need to say anything about this thing. And yet they do. <laughs> Let's talk about some specific common issues with statements that have A, been released on this particular topic, and B, once again, I think this can apply to, uh, in general, topics and issues like this throughout history and presumably in the future. One of the specific common issues I think that comes up is making statements with a passive voice. This is a common rhetorical tactic to make it seem like we're acknowledging the badness of a situation without pointing out who may be responsible for the badness of a situation. So, for example, Elizabeth Warren said, quote, Israel has a right to defend its citizens after Hamas's terrorist attacks, which have driven the region into turmoil and cost thousands of lives. And then, a little bit of a shift in the voice here, the war in Gaza has become a humanitarian crisis and has claimed the lives of innocent Palestinians. Yeah, that in particular seems to divorce the idea between Israel's right to self-defense and Israel being the entity which has killed innocent Palestinians. 
No, it's not Israel. It's the war in Gaza. The war has killed innocent Palestinians. If you read a little deeper into that statement, because she's resting so heavily on Israel's right of self-defense, it almost hints at Palestinians being responsible for the death of Palestinians. So I think this is a really good example of a politician feeling forced to make a statement and yet feeling the need to play said statement safely so as not to anger particular groups and not to bring any repercussions onto their own career. The best example of this that I think I've seen was actually Justin Trudeau in Canada, um, who is, like most politicians, uh, regardless of the fact that the vast majority of the world population thinks that there should be a ceasefire in the region, uh, no politician will say the word ceasefire <laughs> to the point that Monsignor Trudeau gets up and says, we need to see a cease, we need to see a humanitarian pause so we can, fl- we need a ceasing of the levels of violence that we are seeing. He almost messed up. I want to critique that statement, but I also want to really critique your pronunciation of Monsieur. Monsieur. <laughs> Tradu. <laughs> Monsieur Tuzo. But how fast did Brosif put on the brakes when he realized he was halfway through that which shall not be named? Cease the the levels of violence that we are seeing. Well, words matter, Josh. And that's why we're also not calling it a genocide, because genocide would require that the U.S. would take action on it, because the U.S. always takes actions on genocide, just like they do with the Uyghur Muslims in China. So for a variety of reasons, politicians or whoever that have been forced to make statements are trying to do so in the safest way possible, which makes these statements turn out to be null statements. So no, they're not being silent, but also they're not saying anything. The other problem I think that's common with these statements is going back to what we started the episode with is a lack of nuance, a lack of specificity to the positions that are being put forward. And I think that to start to summarize this issue and and come to some argument or adjudication that makes sense on it, there is a lack of consideration when it comes to degrees of actions that has sort of historically defined the Israel-Palestine conflict. And in particular, certainly the situation that we're in right now, I think that that applies. Well, what do you you mean by that? Think to the history that we've gone over. Israeli people have a religious tie to this region. Politically, they were persecuted all over Europe. So for self-preservation purposes, they need to have a homeland. They were given this land, established this country of Israel, and then were attacked time and time again. I think that it would be hard to say that they don't have a right to defend themselves. And we hear that as a stance and a statement over and over from the people in the media who do support Israel. They have a right to defend themselves. When I say that there's a lack of consideration to the degree, what I mean is the right to defend themselves certainly does not mean let's wipe out every Palestinian on the planet to ensure that there aren't any around to attack us ever again. And yet, in some cases, that seems to be the strategy. Well, you 
are being proportional in your response to Palestinian aggressions, if you believe that every Palestinian is culpable for an attack that happened against you, which again goes back to those generalizations we've been talking about, which we really need to dismantle. To be fair, on the flip side, back to our history lesson, for the Arabs, for the Muslims, if they had a country stolen from them, if they were kicked out of their homes, and if they were subsequently persecuted, it's not illegitimate to think that they should have the right to try to reclaim some of their rights, some of their land, some of their autonomy. But there are people on that side who call for the utter annihilation of Israel, similarly to Israel trying to wipe out all of the Palestinians. Again, if you take the degree to which a principle is applicable, you have a much more nuanced and a much more legitimate position. But that's really not happening anywhere. There are valid reasons for behavior on both sides, and there are valid criticisms of behavior on both sides. So how do we resolve the issue? In my opinion, an actual productive conversation on this topic would look like, yes, principally, we have the right to defend ourselves as Israel. What is the least catastrophic actions that we can take to ensure that we have a reasonable degree of safety? I want to believe, I can't come up with a solution, but I want to believe there's a solution that lies on this side of utter annihilation of a people. On the Palestinian side, yes, they should have a right to access to homelands. They should have a right to access to food, water, hospitals, etc. How do they get that? The conversation should be, how do we work out a solution that gains us these things while still allowing another persecuted group of people access to some of their basic securities and religious and political rights as well. I don't hear either of those conversations happening. They must be happening, but they lack the sort of sensationalism that gets them into the forefront right now. They're only happening on indubitably. You know, we could solve this right here, right now. You and I, we are the smartest people we know. We are the smartest people on this call right now. Mm Mm-hmm. The problem, I think the big takeaway here is there are virtually no actors in the public sphere that are actually trying to put forward ideas to help resolve the issue. Almost everyone is either forwarding propaganda or doing damage control on their own special interests at this point, not looking for solutions. That's what's especially frustrating. It does not seem like there are any actors, especially like the major world players such as the U.S. and other Firm 5 Security Council members or, you know, a leading economic uh, entities across the world. does not seem like any of them are looking at this stance from a perspective of what is best for that particular situation for the people on both sides. Everybody is coming at it from a perspective of what is best for our national interests first before we're considering what's best for the people of Israel, the people of Palestine. I guess the strategy for everyone is maintain as much of our self-interest as possible and wait for the 24-hour news cycle to move people's attention on to the next thing, which, to be fair, is probably going to work. I mean, we haven't talked a lot about Ukraine since this started. Mm -hmm. And we won't talk about this when the next thing starts. But pessimism aside, you asked, are there solutions? Short answer, no, I don't think we're going to be able to come up with any slightly longer answer. Let's give it a try. I think that most people agree that the first step to a solution is going to be a cease, uh, cease, ceasing of the firing 
that is currently taking people's lives. That's called a humanitarian pause, which is something that is totally a term we've definitely understood in popular discourse before now. Ooh, could they say humanitarian pause instead of ceasefire? The fuck, I said it. Oh, you're not supposed to say the C word. Dang it. Not that C word, this C word. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. And, and again, I don't think this is completely unreasonable. Netanyahu has said we will not have a C word while there are still hostages being held by Hamas. I understand that they don't want any harm to befall the people who are taken hostage. However, so many Palestinians have been killed that at some point you have to kind of do a utilitarian calculus and, and see whether it's worth doing so much harm to try to save this many people. Maybe um, this would be a good time to point listeners to our trolley problem uh, episode. I think personally, if we were to start a resolution to this current conflict, step A is ceasefire. Step B is a returning of the hostages. And that seems as though both sides will have put forward something to start some sort of dialogue to move forward despite Everything that just happened? Seems like a game of chicken, though. They would have to try to do these things simultaneously in order for both outcomes to be guaranteed. Maybe one of them should do a thing in a gesture of good faith and hope the other entity reciprocates. And they need to basically accept the horrors that were committed on both sides already. The initial attack on October 7th, the subsequent dropping of bombs, uh, both sides have to say, okay, I guess we're even now. Let's move forward and put that behind us, which uh, does not feel good. I know that's not what you're saying, but it almost seems like they need to do that now and then maybe have like a truth and reconciliation commission afterwards or something uh, to actually deal with the uh, lasting in- impacts of these sorts of tensions and, and crimes, more or less. But in the in the short term, they need to do something that'll actually cease the immediate destruction. Well, I, I don't think that a truth and reconciliation commission would be outside the realm of possibility in terms of things that would be necessary if it's possible, which probably not. But if it's possible to have a solution, I think that that would almost have to be part of it. I mean, this has been back and forth. One side attacks the other. The other side retaliates all the way until the British, who somehow aren't being blamed for anything, started this mess in the first place. If you can't get over the past, how are they going to create any kind of solution for the future? There are a few considerations for why the ceasefire hasn't happened on a practical level. For instance, it's very likely that will give Hamas the chance to regroup strategize another way to potentially do something offensive to Israel or to redouble its efforts at being cagey with its outposts and hospital locations for hubs of influence. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, I don't think anybody does. And Israel has explicitly said that is their strategy. In response to Hamas, who has explicitly said, we must teach Israel a lesson and we will do it twice and three times. If October 7th was number one, we can assume that if Hamas is left with any power whatsoever, there will be a second and there will be a third attack. 
And so Israel has basically stated their strategy is to eradicate Hamas from the Gaza Strip with any means necessary. And I think as much as most people agree that a ceasefire would be the start of at least temporary peace, at least a a de-escalation of the violence, I can't see that ceasefire happening until Israel is satisfied that Hamas has been rooted out. No, I, I don't see any reason we will actually see a ceasefire happen. Israel is adamant in their position. The U.S. is adamant in backing Israel. They're not going to put the influence on Israel to engage in a ceasefire. Very obviously, based on the rhetoric we've been hearing from Biden and a lot of other politicians. So as destructive as that will be to the people of Palestine, very probable they will continue until there's no opposition. And this is where I think conversations about degrees that we talked about earlier have to come into play. There there has to be a point in time in which Israel says, we need a ceasefire because if this point isn't long past already, we have crossed the line for where we can justify our actions based on the attack that was levied against us. And whether that line falls before Hamas is completely rooted out or after, I suppose would be the discussion. Or we just have this, and this is seemingly the approach that they've taken, incredibly harsh utilitarian argument of we will do anything we have to do now to root out Hamas to ensure that in the long term they aren't able to do more damage. But would that even be possible? Um, Hamas being not essentially a state actor, being more of an idea, does not necessarily stay within the borders, right? So if Israel continues to show this amount of, they'll call it retaliation, some will call it aggression, doesn't that potentially engender future issues from other countries in the region where ideas that may be sympathetic to some of the stances that Hamas has taken may start to take root. Is it possible that this could completely backfire on them if they root out Hamas to the extent where they kill even more innocent Palestinians, that suddenly they're going to find it even more difficult to be the lone Jewish state amid a a Muslim region? That's my concern. They might be solving the Hamas problem within the Gaza Strip and then creating the Hamas problem in the entire Middle East. And then you mentioned game of chicken before. It's just a matter of time before these Middle Eastern nations call the United States' bluff on, sure, you're willing to put out these weak statements about your support of Israel. Are you actually willing to back them up militarily, physically? In reality, if once again, all of the Arab countries surrounding Israel decide to attack. Uh, would that be like more or less World War Three? More. Yeah. Alongside of Russia, Ukraine, alongside of China, Taiwan, all sorts of hot spots. Wow, it is really depressing to look at the world sometimes. Here's my attempt at a possible solution that might have, uh, let's just say, a better chance than anything I've heard so far. Step one, ceasefire. Step two, potentially, 
enough damage has been done to Hamas's power and credibility that as people and infrastructure returns to Gaza, the rule of the Gaza Strip is taken away from Hamas. There are alternative parties to Hamas. Fatah is the party that they defeated in 2006. Fatah also currently runs the Palestinian Authority, which has some degree of control in the West Bank, which is the other major region of Israel where Palestinians reside. And Fatah pre-2006 was looking to engage in peace talks with Israel, which would be hard now given these events. But if they were to be able to engage in peace talks with Israel while simultaneously stopping the remainders of Hamas from disrupting said talks, as they have in the past, and that would presumably necessitate armed conflict between these two factions within Palestine, but were all those things to happen, that's the closest thing to a solution that I can think of. I have a solution. And this is solid. They need a common enemy. And then everyone will get along. So there I did it. I fixed the Middle East. Britain? I think the U.S. should definitely reconsider funding both Israel and Palestine. And then they could probably both be pissed at the U.S. And like, rightly so. So that's a good start. Depressingly, the world that you're describing is probably more realistic than the world that I'm describing. Yeah, I tend to be pretty smart. I don't, I don't know about smart, but hey. <laughs> more cynical, more cynical oh, that too. in this case. <laughs> it's hard to say. Who, who knows what this will look like uh, when you, listener, are hearing this conversation that Kelly and I are having. The issue is constantly evolving. I'm not sure how things will have changed between this recording, our release in a couple of days, and when you're listening to us. But hopefully this has served as a good foundation to help you engage in this issue. and. Any conversations that you may have in regards to it in a healthier and more productive way. Well, hopefully that's true for all of our episodes, minus some that might be too controversial for us to handle. More controversial than this. Such as the biggest controversy of all. Uh, are, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Absolutely. It's the one topic I think we're both very afraid to engage in, but... We recognize it's an important controversy for the ages. Is a hot dog a sandwich? sandwich?